This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... A wave of Russian missile strikes on cities across Ukraine. One of the things that we see is that wars are not ending. They're lasting. They're enduring. It just seems that we're in a situation of crises after crises. Winter has come to Afghanistan and with it skyrocketing need for aid to millions of desperate Afghans. The mass movement of people across Somalia. It is frustrating to go back to a place and talk again about a place year after year and things are not getting better. The unthinkable has happened here. Here in Butra we saw our humanity being shattered. You're watching situations where you're supposed to be impartial, neutral, and you're seeing things that are taking place which are horrible. Our role is to assist people who have been affected by conflict whether they're on side A or, or side B. A 14-year-old boy is in the middle of an operation when Russian missiles take down the power. There is no help without peace. So the only solution is peace in these countries. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, And in today's programme, we're going to get the humanitarian perspective on 2022. I think we know it's been a challenging year, to say the least. Last time on Inside Geneva, we heard from the journalists. Today, I'm delighted to have Jason Strasuzo, communications officer with the International Committee of the Red Cross, and Tarek Yasarovich. He's communications officer with the World Health Organization and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Now, I think ICRC and WHO, you're not going to argue with me when I say you must have had a very busy year. We can't avoid it. A lot of this discussion is going to centre on Ukraine. Jason, I'm going to start with you because, you know, we started 2022 with some huge challenges. Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria, drought in the Horn of Africa. And then came February 24th. Could you just give me your a flavor of what it was like at the ICRC? You work particularly in conflict zones on that day. I would actually say, and this sounds a little silly in retrospect, but I think it was slow to dawn upon our communications team the gravity of the situation that we were now facing and, importantly, the numbers of people that would be affected. When you think of the early days of Ukraine, uh, you see the images, uh, literally millions of people leaving their homes, uh, both in, inside Ukraine, uh, but also refugees pouring over the borders into other European countries. These Ukrainians have just escaped the horrors of their home. The UN is now raising its estimates to at least 442,000 people who have now become refugees. So there was uh, a ton of work to do inside the International Committee of the Red Cross, even though let's remind ourselves that there had been a conflict occurring in Ukraine since 2014. But you had been there since 2013, in fact. Yes, that's right. So we already had infrastructure in place. We had personnel in place. We had relationships. Uh, we had supply lines. But after the end of February, everything was multiplied uh, by a huge number. The needs uh, of Ukrainians 
the regional assistance that needed to be unfurled. Uh, but then inside the ICRC, of course, we had to ramp up the number of people in the country in the comms team. Uh, that meant we were rotating people into the country. For instance, I rotated into the country. A lot of my comms colleagues rotated in the country, and that's how we responded. But then once you get your footing underneath you, you need a longer-term plan. Uh, the realization sets in that the needs of millions of Ukrainians are going to be there for a long time, and how does the ICRC structure itself to be able to respond to those needs and all the different disciplines in which we respond, so food assistance, medical assistance, uh, working to reconnect separated families, the issue of prisoners of war, uh, all these things need to be addressed. And that's that's a huge task. Tarek, I'm going to come to you, the World Health Organization, because you guys have been flat out with a pandemic. And now this as well. And you are working very hard to try and support Ukraine's health service. Uh, indeed. Uh, I was the uh, first one uh, to be deployed from Geneva on communication side, I remember it was March 7th when I crossed the border. And just, uh, I will never forget the, the, the sight of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people massed up at the border waiting to, uh, to get out. Uh, uh, this, this, uh, this, this really was, uh, was a truly heartbreaking experience. We knew by then that uh, health uh, facilities were among uh, infrastructure that has been targeted, that has been affected, impacted by bombing. The strike came in just after 2 a.m. and hit the maternity wing. Russian bombing of a maternity hospital and children's ward in the southern port city of Mariupol. And we knew that uh, in the situation, as we, as we learned from other conflicts, once the uh, hospitals are being bombed, that uh, access to health care uh, is becoming more difficult. Uh, the, wor the work for health workers is becoming more difficult. And it was important for WHO to document all of that. I stayed in Ukraine first month and a half and was able to uh, to speak with the doctors, with nurses in Lviv, but also in Dnipro, where we set up an uh, office to be able to uh, to channel medical supplies that were coming from uh, from the west of the country and to understand that uh, the resilience of uh, of health workers was really something to, to, to admire. And we see this up to today, that health system is still functioning in Ukraine, despite more than 700 attacks that we have reported and despite uh, all these uh, casualties that, that, that we can see. Danny, I want to ask you to react to what Jason and Tarek have said. Well, I'm a great admirer of the work of both of your organizations, but I do have one or two questions. First of all, Jason, you mentioned long term. Uh, and my question is always, how long can you anticipate what's going to happen? If I go back to the UN and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's been 20 years now since the UN's been involved uh, with a budget of over a billion dollars a year for 2022. Uh, it just seems that we're in a situation of crises after crises. And Martin Griffiths, who's the head of the humanitarian agency of the UN, requested a budget of $51 billion. Uh, is this sustainable to continue with these longer, longer kinds of involvement and secondly, things that cost more and more money? The ICRC's put a, out a record appeal. I think it's $2.8 Is that not right, Jason? I mean, the, the needs everywhere seem to be growing and growing. One of the things that, that we see uh, is that wars are not ending. 
they're lasting, they're enduring. If we just take a a well-known country that has suffered from conflict for a long time, I, I was thinking um, about, okay, what, not only what humanitarian crises have we faced this year, what are we going to face next year? And at, at the top of the list outside of Ukraine, you can think of the Horn of Africa and you think of the hunger problem, potential famine problem in Somalia. And we're seeing a huge increase in our in the number of child patients uh, that we're treating at our malnutrition centers. We also put out a stat last week that said that showed that there's been a 30% increase in the number of, of violent attacks with, with multiple casualties over the past year. More on the situation in Somalia then. And the president there says at least 100 people have died after two car bomb blasts. And you put those things together and, and they're actually intertwined, right? One affects the other. I think back, I'm not sure that there's been a, a long period of peace in Somalia for 30 years. But that gets to the heart of your question, Danny. How long do, do the conflicts last? And you can look around the world and you can look at Yemen. Uh, you can look at Syria. You can look at DRC. The war in Yemen made them flee their home. It's also decimated their healthcare system and made her mother's health worse. As things stand, this may end up being the last shipment of humanitarian aid, food and medicine from Turkey into northwest Syria. More than 200,000 people have run away from the M23 armed group as it's advanced in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And the violence has lasted a very long time. And therefore, the needs of the people who are not involved in the conflict but are greatly affected by it lasts for a very long time. You ask, is this sustainable? That's a question that I, I cannot answer. And that's up to uh, the country, the world, who fund UN operations and who fund the operations of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Very generous donors. And uh, we continue to count on them. I think that your question in part has to go to those donors. But what I can say is the donors see the value in the work that we do. They see the value in the, in the needs and then for them, there's a calculus of the mix between humanity and human response, but also what are the, the gains, either economic or political, to be had by funding the type of work that our organizations do. I'm happy to say that despite the fact that our budget continues to go up because the needs around the world continue to go up, we do continue to get the funding for the most part that we need. Danny, I'm going to bring you in because I saw you had your hand up, but Tarek, I also saw you nodding, particularly when Jason there was talking about protracted conflicts, protracted crises. I mean, I have heard humanitarian agencies, including the ICRC, sound a note of frustration that they are being put in the position of trying to paper over the humanitarian wounds of what is a political crisis, and yet the, the will, the diplomatic political will, isn't there to solve it. I mean, Tarek, maybe this is not the right question for an aid worker, but I just wonder, do, do you do you ever, you know, when you're out and you go somewhere which has been a crisis for, for decades, do you feel that frustration? No, obviously. Obviously, uh, we do frustration uh, to go back to places uh, like Syria, like DR Congo, uh, going to see what's going on in Yemen. Unfortunately, there are places we can't even go to. I think about Tigray. We all talk about Ukraine, but uh, but there are there, there are other horrible situations going on right now that uh, unfortunately receive less attention. And yes, we do feel frustration, but there's only so much we as humanitarians can do. We can appeal, we can speak about it, we can try to come up with our needs assessment. In our in our situation, it's a health assessment. We know how damaging conflict is to the health system of any country. Just 
Think about natural disaster. Things look really bad, but slowly they improve. And we are there to help for a couple of weeks, maybe months, and then health system gets up. In conflicts, it's much worse. It's much worse situation because health system is slowly deteriorating. Health workers are leaving the country. People are, are basically becoming less and less immune because of all the other issues they may have. There is less and less of, of supplies. So yes, it is frustrating to go back to a place and talk again about a place year after year and things are not getting better. But this is what we have to keep doing because if, if, it's, not, if, if it's not us, who is going to do it? So, uh, so we can only appeal, but we were always saying one thing, there is no health without peace. So the only solution is peace in, in, in these countries. The United Nations has suspended peace talks aimed at ending Syria's five-year civil war. Yemeni rivals before the start of talks. This is the first time they've met since 2016. Danny, I know you've been waiting to come in there. What's your reaction to what Jason and Well, Terrence? my reaction first is the notion of frustration because the political will is not there to stop these things so that you can't anticipate having an exit strategy from different countries. My second question would be really about compassion fatigue. I mean, at a certain moment, it just seems that these things become repetitive, not natural disasters, but things that are coming out of humanitarian crisis, out of war situations. At a certain moment, do you feel that kind of frustration? I am also really interested in what Danny was talking about their compassion fatigue. I'm wondering also about spending the money fatigue. I have had humanitarians say to me, you know, people are interested in investing in Ukraine, but other stuff is slipping off the radar screen. And then others have said, no, we're still getting our money. Everything's going to be fine. I mean, Jason, you said your, your budget seems quite well protected. Is that right? There's some nuance there. I've been with the International Committee of the Red Cross for seven years now. And what I see is that we put out an appeal. We say, this is what we're going to do. We meet with the donors. And by the end of the year, for the most part, our budget is uh, funded. The programs that we have planned are able to be carried out. Sometimes there's a shortfall. Sometimes we move money from one place to another. Sometimes we have reserves that we tap into. With that said, what you're referring to, Imogen, is that this year, the people who dedicate time, money, resources to responding to humanitarian needs, put a lot of attention into Ukraine, and rightfully so, because there was lots of humanitarian needs there. On the other hand, other countries, other people, other communities that also had similar humanitarian needs received less attention and therefore less funding this year. Uh, there is a program inside the ICRC where you can look at every country's budget and what funding has been come has come in specifically for that country, and and the truth is that a lot of those countries, as I look at this graphic that we have internally, a lot of those countries are in the red. Ukraine's in the black. Ukraine is well funded. A lot of the other countries are in the red. More than a quarter of a million of some of the world's poorest refugees are facing food shortages after a donor ran out of money. The World Food Program has cut rations by forty percent. Almost 800,000 refugees have had their food rations cut. Tarek, some aid agencies have actually, of the World Food Programme, for example, have had to cut, and the, U the UN Refugee Agency have had to cut provisions to operations programs that they have in Africa. Is the WHO faced with that? 
No, in, uh, surely uh, they, they, they're as a part of a wider UN humanitarian community, we are part of of, of appeals, and we, we we try really to see uh, where the money is needed the most and for what. Uh, take example of Afghanistan, where where WHO uh, really is trying to keep the all all of the health system together by by paying health workers. So we are talking about significant amount of. Money. We are trying to get that money wherever we can. In Yemen, for example, we are also trying to provide the health system from collapsing completely, and and, and this this requires money. Now, now, as 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 Jason said, that some unfortunately some crises are better funded than others. So our job again is is, is try to tell the world that uh, that there is a suffering in different parts of the world and uh, just because Ukraine is so much in the media and Ukraine is uh, is, is about big politics uh, doesn't mean that uh, we don't have needs. Uh, again, uh, look at the Tigray uh, for almost two years. We were not able to, to reach six million people who are in a complete blockade. Money is really important, but it's not only money. It's sometimes it's really access, and you don't get access if you don't shout uh, loud and try to try to put pressures on political players. Jason, your hand shot up when Tarek mentioned access. Um, he also mentioned shouting loud. That's not actually the ICRC style normally, is it? Well, I think we see the need to shout at times, but you're right, over the past couple of decades, that has not been our modus operandi. What I wanted to add is two quick thoughts. One is that the ICRC more and more frequently is saying that we, but also humanitarians at large, can't substitute for the state. We can't step in for the medical system. We can't step in for the water system. We do, in fact, do that kind of work, but eventually the state has to take over because this is not a job in the long term for humanitarians. Two is that we are moving more of our programs away from short-term solutions to longer-term solutions, in part to answer the fact that these conflicts are lasting for so long, but also to protect ourselves from the idea that there is compassion fatigue or there is donor fatigue. So let's fix the problems in the long term now when we can. Well, good luck with that. I wish I saw the energy from the politicians and diplomats that I see from the humanitarian community, because I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit uh, pessimistic and cynical. But when you see crises that last for decades, and you guys have mentioned them, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, you have to wonder, where is the will to say peace is the answer to this? Now, Danny, you wanted to ask about impartiality. Well, I mean, I, it's part of the, the, the issue of frustration. I mean, you're watching situations where you're supposed to be impartial, neutral, and you're seeing things that are taking place which are horrible, and, and countries, groups are doing things that are absolutely violations of international law, and you have to come in to try and be as neutral and impartial as possible. That must be difficult for you to do, given the situations we're seeing today. It's is such a complicated question, and I think we could spend an hour talking about this alone. I'll try to do it as briefly as I can. The way I think about it is if you go back to post-World War II, when the Geneva Conventions were signed, ratified, agreed to by all the nations of the world, the Geneva Conventions, or the, rather the countries of the world, gave the International Committee of the Red Cross a very special task, and that was to be a middleman in conflict, no matter what. And so what that means is you have to carry out your approach, your, your public statements, uh, your work, 
in, in a way that builds trust on both sides. And when you're in the middle of a war between two sides, of course you see horrific things. And often you see that one side is the aggressor and one side is the aggrieved. And uh, naturally, human nature would be to be on the side of, of the aggrieved. Uh, but that's not our role. Our role is to assist people who have been affected by conflict, whether they're on side A or, or side B to uh, facilitate exchanges uh, of information, to visit prisoners of war, whether they're on side A or side B, to meet with leaders on side A or side B with the goal of promoting a more humane approach to war, which, of course, many people would say that's a complete oxymoron. In many senses, it is, but there has been progress made in certain areas when it comes to a more humane approach to war. Now, when you take this approach and you treat both sides equally, then, of course, uh, side A will say, well, you're taking the side of side B. And at the same time, side B will often say, well, you're taking the side of side A. And it's not just in the past year that the ICRC has been this. We've gone through our archives and we've found our leadership saying this in conflicts in the 1970s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s. This is the nature of being the man in the middle between two warring sides. Uh, it's a difficult position, but it's a very valuable position for the world that even when you have enemy states fighting each other, there is this neutral party in between that they said in 1949 that they would trust, and for the most part, they still do, and were able to achieve good things from that. At the same time, taking criticism, sometimes very loud criticism, and it could be from any side in a conflict. Tarek, obviously the World Health Organization, you're not the guardian of the Geneva Conventions, but you too operate on that principle of impartiality. We do. And as Jason said, we need to have uh, some sort of principles when we go in. For us, in a health is, is a right to health. Uh, right to health is a part of human rights. So we are looking at that from a patient perspective, from the person perspective. Everyone should have right to access health services. Now, we traditionally work with the ministries of health. Uh, we have offices in 150 countries. Our main partner is Ministry of Health. But what about countries that are in a war? and that uh, government is not controlling uh, all of the territory. What about territories that are controlled by someone else? And we have to work with both. And let's take example uh, of Syria. We have been operating from Damascus, but we have been clearly saying that we will uh, provide medical supplies to all health providers, so not only Ministry of Health, but also to those doctors who are, who are providing health care at the territory that is not controlled uh, by, by the government. And we need to do this. And if we are blocked from providing that, we have to speak openly about it. And we did it in the case of Syria, when we were not allowed to, to bring surgical supplies uh, to non-government controlled areas. For the first time in several years, WHO reached 18 besieged areas. The healthcare system throughout Syria is under assault. I was working at another hospital that was hit. When you're operating and you hear the airstrikes, buildings are getting hit. One doctor who was working in one hospital uh, that was controlled by one side, maybe tomorrow uh, working uh, in, a, in, a, in a territory that's controlled by another side. It's the same doctor, same hospital, but the, the, the control has changed. We will still work with this person because this person is providing healthcare services not only to soldiers, but to, to civilians who need uh, that access. For us, it's really, we need to make sure that health providers on all of the territory that we are working on are being supported. Danny, 
What do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I keep thinking about exit, and I keep thinking about how your situations will evolve and how you can leave, because the situation somehow has gotten better. And when you talk about neutrality, there must be a huge frustration for you on the field, seeing certain things take place which shouldn't take place, and you have to go in and do the Band-Aid work or whatever. And therefore, the, the neutrality, I mean, even Switzerland went along with the European Union in sanctioning Russia, uh, and the question of neutrality comes up all the time in Switzerland. So for your organizations, as Jason said, it's a very, very difficult position, which must lead to a certain kind of personal frustration at given moments. Do you feel frustrated that you're not supposed to speak out and say that's a terrible thing you did? I, I sense that you guys are kind of used to the, the goal is my goal, like delivering aid. I think that, well, as our president, our presidents have said, that if we do speak out, then we lose the special status that we have. We lose the special position that we are in. I don't personally feel frustrated because I don't feel that it's our role in the world to do that. That's not what the international community that empowered us, the special mentions of the ICRC and the Geneva Conventions, asked us to do in 1949. There are other organizations that speak out, and powerfully, and necessarily so, when they see violations, but that's not ICRC's role. So I, professionally speaking, I don't become frustrated at that, even though, even in your question, Danny, is an underlying tension or underlying frustration on our behalf. I don't personally feel it. The parallel I would make is before I joined the ICRC, like Imogen, I worked as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent for the Associated Press. The AP is famously quite neutral. Uh, the way the AP explains it is in the United States, historically, the AP stories had to appear in papers that were conservative, and they had to appear in papers that were liberal. So when I was an AP reporter, I washed myself, cleansed myself of political views of personal outrage and just reported the story. I feel very similar at the ICRC, and I sense that others feel the same way. Tarek? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Jason. We, we all have to, uh, first of all, think about what's our mandate and what's our goal and what's our mission. And our mission is to help people. And that's the ultimate goal. And we uh, try to find the best ways of doing that. But but at the same time, we have to keep, uh, to maybe channel this frustration into energy to do these things. We need to say, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, this is just not acceptable. We have to do something about it. And then from there, really uh, trying to, to see what's the best way. And whether at some point it is useful to speak publicly or not. I understand that different organizations have different policies. I think uh, where, where WHO is, is that at some point we may have this uh, quiet diplomacy that our director general will call the Ministry of Health trying to sort out the issue. But if it doesn't work, then we will speak publicly because sometimes that may be the, the click that will unblock the, the, the situ situation. Yes, so we need to, to keep... Uh, a level of, of sobriety and then say, you know, this is the goal. But at the same time, we are all humans. And, and there are things like, you know, when Ukraine uh, on 24th of February woke up uh, and I remember that I, I was fighting during the war in Sarajevo, during the siege of Sarajevo. And it reminded me so much that uh, I went personally to, to my supervisors asking them to go there because I felt I will feel much better to be there rather than watching this on the TV. We are over time, 
and we could talk a lot longer, but we've looked back at 2022 and some of the challenges. We haven't gone to all of them. We haven't talked too much about the Horn of Africa and the climate change-driven situation there with droughts. I'd be interested in hearing from the two humanitarian agencies, what is going to be on your radar? What are going to be your challenges and your hopes, if there are any, for 2023? Well, for the World Health Organization, I mean, the the year indeed was very challenging. We are still in a COVID-19 pandemic. We have seen a resurgence of other diseases. Uh, Cholera is coming back in a number of countries. We had a we had an outbreak of MPOX that was declared public health emergency. And then on top of it, we have these humanitarian crises that we have to deal with. And you mentioned climate change. That's something that is, unfortunately, may bring more diseases and more, more suffering because of the health-related issues. What we really want to see, the world being better prepared, now the, the member states, the countries, the governments are discussing the, the pandemic treaty, how to make world better prepared next time, where there will be more equity. You probably got tired of WHO calling for equity in diagnostics, in tools such as vaccines uh, and treatments for COVID-19. We want next time to do better. We have to be ready for more diseases coming in because conflicts, climate change, and overall, uh, human activity is making that uh, there is a possibility and there is a risk of, of a reappearance of old pathogens and emergence of new pathogens. So we have to all get better prepared to promote health, to preserve health, and to do it uh, in a way uh, that will benefit all of us and not only those who can afford it. Jason, look ahead to 2023, challenges, hopes. Uh, I'm personally really concerned about the situation in Somalia. Hunger in the Horn of Africa, perhaps in the Sahel as well. Uh, we see uh, negative trends, uh, obviously in food security numbers, but also market issues. Uh, I'm also concerned about the situation in Afghanistan. I think the people that are living there are going to have a very difficult winter. I think uh, hunger numbers are way up there. Uh, obviously, Ukraine, but uh, we're, we've talked about that quite a bit. Bigger picture away from the individual countries. The ICRC is extremely concerned about urban warfare, what that means for people living in populated areas. An area we haven't talked about, but is an increasing concern for the humanitarian sector is digital threats, keeping information secure. And of course, uh, going back to the issue of the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, we're uh, very, very interested in making sure that uh, prisoners of war are, are treated well and that we have access to be able to see them in everywhere that they're being held. Two issues you mentioned there, which I will certainly be keeping my eye on in 2023, in which we actually hope to have new episodes of Inside Geneva about prisoners of war, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about how that works and what the ICRC's role is, and cyber warfare. We do have an episode about that coming up. But Danny, I want to give the last word to you. What's your predictions for 2023? And try and put something hopeful into it. I, I was going to give you my New Year's wish, Imogen. Can I do that? Yes, of course. I, I would wish that I would see all of the humanitarian organizations exit from certain countries and that the donor conferences would ask for less money because less money was needed and it didn't have to continue to be more countries, more crises, more money. That's my wish. 
Well, I will second that. It's quite interesting to see Jason and Tarek, even though what they are nodding for is actually less work for the organizations they work for. But I think you both welcome it. Let's hope that 2023 brings us some good news because, my goodness me, I think we could all do with it. But for now, Jason Strasuzio, Daniel Warner and Tarek Yasarovich, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Geneva. And I wish you all the very, very best for 2023. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes. You can hear analysis of the war in Ukraine, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.